0: Subscribe to The Spectator magazine this Christmas and get the next 12 issues in print and online for just £12. Not only that, but you'll also receive a bottle of Tattinger champagne worth £42 to see you through to the new year. Join the party today at www.spectator.co.uk forward slash celebrate. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor for The Spectator, and I'm very pleased to be joined this week by the writer Siri Husfed, whose new book is not, as you might often expect, a novel, but a collection of essays called Mothers, Fathers and Others, New Essays. Siri, welcome. Thank you. To start with looking at this collection, you know, you're best known for your fiction, but how do you see essays as a as a form? Are they a kind of complement to your fiction? Are they something totally different that you do?
1: I no longer think they're totally different, but I actually for quite a long time now have been inhabiting two worlds. I chose these essays because I consider them to be essays that can be read by interested, intelligent people, but they are not specialized. I have also published a number of essays in academic journals, given scholarly lectures in in various fields, philosophy, neurology, psychiatry, neuroscience. So that part of my life continues. And I have another book of really much more scholarly essays that I'm also putting together. So the essay is deeply part of my life. And I have to say, even In the scholarly works, except for commentaries, for example, a peer review commentary for someone, I use the first person. And because I have formally rejected the ordinary third person academic voice, I think it's a voice of authority that can lead people astray.
0: (laughs) I mean, these essays, you describe yourself in them. As an intellectual vagabond as yeah. someone who crosses borders is interested in science and in in arts i mean how much do you think that ability to transgress the ability to do as it were take insights from neuroscience or from theoretical psychiatry and to mesh them with your artistic discussions is that something that's become freer i mean obviously we're writing still in the shadow of the famous two cultures essay do you think that the two cultures are coming closer together or are you an outlier in that respect? Um,
1: Well, I think I'm something of an outlier. And at the same time, I have been invited more and more to interdisciplinary conferences. I can tell you that I gave a grand rounds lecture in the neuroscience, neurology, psychiatry departments, two of them. I gave the same lecture at Brigham and Women's Hospital, which is associated with Harvard and at Mass General. I gave my lecture fine, but then you get perks, which is I was taken around to people doing neuroscience research at Massachusetts General Hospital. And the mostly young scientists introduced me to their work, I asked them questions, then they asked me questions. And one young man wanted to know why I had emphasized at one point in my lecture how important it was for scientists to read literature, philosophy, and history, and how important I thought it was for people in the humanities to read in the sciences, to at least have some working knowledge of what's happening in the sciences. He said, you know, I spend all day looking at brain scans and I'm trying to figure out about Alzheimer's, what possible use could philosophy, history, and literature be for me? And and I said, you know, I am not recommending this because it will make you more charming at cocktail parties, which it most definitely will. I am recommending it because I think it will help you in your own work. And that is really my argument. It is not to make... Renaissance people of, you know, (laughs) of the world for its own sake. It's because I find when people are lost inside a particular discipline, whether it's in the humanities or in the sciences, they have a tendency to proceed in a meticulous way forward and then to run into a problem. And without the flexibility of mind that comes from knowing more and knowing other, they get stuck. You can see this in the history of science, you can see it in the history of various modes of thought in the humanities. I know in my own experience that deeply reading and attending lectures and talking to scientists, for someone who has a PhD in literature, but certainly had no early science background of, any kind beyond you know high school science classes and a genetics class in college very very flimsy training but it is more possible than people imagine to understand an alien discipline and i have spent a lot of time and admittedly am very lucky to have the time to spend reading in various disciplines you know, one thought leads to another.
0: You mentioned that you, you know, neurology and neuroscience, you know, what many of us would think of as quite hardcore brain science is something (laughs) you've become interested in and have obviously achieved the level of writing academic level papers on it. I'm wondering how that came about and did that come later for you? Because I know from way back you've been deeply read in psychoanalytic theory. Has having a look at what's Actually, going on in the brain changed or complicated your relationship to those rather more literary figures like sort of Freud and Lacan and Winnicott and so forth?
1: Right, yes. I think knowing about the brain to the degree that we know, I have to say there are many, many unknowns in brain science. But my interest began fairly early. And I think it's in part related to the fact that I have had migraines since I was a child. So I had migraines with auras, undiagnosed, but the auras altered my perception. You know, I saw things that other people didn't see, had feelings that other people didn't have. So that, I think, influenced some of my reading. But even when I was in college, I got interested in Christian mystics, specifically female Christian mystics and what that had to do with neurological issues, right, epilepsy and migraine in particular. And then when I was writing my dissertation on Charles Dickens at Columbia University, I was writing about his use of pronouns and what his use of pronouns had to do with his ideas about identity and the self. I ran into a paper written by Roman Jakobson, the linguist Roman Jakobson. In that paper, he talks about how some patients with aphasia, language difficulties after a patient has, has had a stroke, for example, lost pronouns first, particularly I and you. And he mentions then that children learn them last. This had a huge effect on me. It led me to reading lay neurology books, and then Oliver Sacks had published his early books by then, which I read with admiration, and they led me to Alexander Luria, the great Russian neurologist. So already back in the 80s, I had been captivated by, you know, how the material of the brain relates to psychological states and it grew with the explosion of brain research in the 90s when i started attending lectures and i bought myself a rubber brain that turned out to be very unuseful because (laughs) it was far too crude i still have it here on my desk but it was brain science 101. i got myself you know neuroscience textbooks and started studying them. I attended lectures, which was very, very helpful because there I met scientists who were working on the brain. and I also was invited to join a group, an interdisciplinary group of psychiatrists, brain scientists, psychoanalysts, some robot people who would come every month together for a discussion based on papers. I learned a great deal from that group, which I attended for about two years before it was disbanded.
0: That's all that new material? I mean, I'm asking partly because I-, I... Oh yes,
1: you wanna know how it influenced my, you know, there are people now working on the connections between Freud's insights in psychoanalysis and current insights in neuroscientific research. So one of the important figures in all this is Carl Friston, who's a psychiatrist, neuroscience researcher, mathematician, very brilliant man, who has taken Freud's insights about the economics of the brain and created an elaborate the economics of the brain. Yeah, you know. That was Freud's idea, that this was all about energy. Now, Freud himself was influenced by Helmholtz, a biophysicist of the period, older than Freud. And so what Fristen has done is actually put together Helmholtz, Freud's ideas about an energetic brain that runs on energy rather than pieces of the brain having designated duties, right? This is what we think of as brain science in popular media. It's a kind of new phrenology. That's often the criticism of it. You know, this task is done by this part of the brain, the hippocampus is memory, right? Well, then over time, it's become clear, if you take the hippocampus, that it is connected to navigation, to social experience, and so isolating parts of the brain to specific functions is not worthless, but it's infinitely more complicated than what we read about in the newspapers, the godspot, etc. These simplistic notions of how the brain works. Now, Friston's idea, and I have written a critique for the journal Neuropsychoanalysis about how this is being used. We really don't know yet. I forgot to say he's also combined this with Bayesian predictive theory. It's highly sophisticated. Many, many neuroscientists I know are on the the Friston bandwagon and using it, I think, to great effect. Whether this will prove to be some kind of global theory of brain function remains to be seen.
0: Well, before we dive further down a neurological rabbit hole, um, <laughs> it, it, it is, um, the essays in this book are, as you say, very personal and you begin, I don't know whether you ordered them in a very
1: Oh, I did. Oh, I was so way. careful. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but you know, you begin with a sequence of essays, which are sort of kind of memoirs of your mother and your grandmother, and then move well, you you move all over the place after that. But, but can I start by talking about that initial sequence? Because there's a lot of sense in it where you're saying, you know, this is what I think happened, and this is what I thought happened then, but this is probably still sort of opaque.
1: Yes, yes. I think, you know, I have returned both in my fiction and nonfiction to questions of memory. And I always want to frame even the most personal essays in a way that makes it clear that we edit memories over time, that the present influences how we understand the past. And because the present is an ever moving target, it's a process rather than some fixed entity and This is the first essay, which is about my grandmother. It's called Tilly, my paternal grandmother, was written out of a sense that I had not examined what I knew about her from my current perspective, which I think is much more fulsome than the young self.
0: That idea of not having examined things from your current perspective, and I don't want to speak for you, but it seems to me that if there's a theme that goes through a lot of these essays, it's the idea of if I knew then what I know now.
1: Yes. (laughs) I think, you know, I'm 66 years old and this happens to me frequently. I think to myself, my continual expansion of consciousness, if you will. And I think that expansion has come from reading, you know, where does that come from? It comes from a lot of reading and having your mind changed, becoming someone else over time. And especially with families, we have a tendency to fix our ourselves, to have a ready made story often given by the family to the children. We all create family mythologies that help us limp along in life. And those two early essays were a chance for me to take people I loved, my grandmother and my mother, and look at them again, examine both my own feelings, but also who these people were, and how they changed over time.
0: Do you think of your childhood now as a happy one? When you talk about a lot of things being unspoken in your childhood.
1: Yes, I think of my childhood as generally a happy one. I think that, again, in the mythologies of families, there's often a tendency to blanket over difficulty. Certainly, if you put me on the spectrum of happy and sad, (laughs) we veer heavily, (laughs) heavily toward the happy side. Nevertheless, and this partly comes from, I think, a Scandinavian background, there was a tendency to suppress the unpleasant. And that's a human tendency indeed. And I think that you know, what are now called patriarchal values were very much at work in my family as well. And I tried to address some of that in the essays.
0: In quite a lot of these essays, you when you look back, there are instances of these patriarchal values of you being pushed down or not speaking up. It feels like you're quite cross in a sense with <laughs> your younger self. You know, you say, if I had only I had spoken up then or <laughs> recognize what was going on then
1: yes I think that's an astute comment that the fact that I came from the world I came from that I certainly think of myself or I thought of myself as a girl and now as a woman influenced me more than I knew right I wasn't fully aware of the degree to which I sat on myself, right? Now, that, I think, is something that does create anger. I want to say that anger, if it's not constant, is a useful emotion. I mean, there's a beautiful essay often mentioned by Audre Lorde on the uses of anger. And I think, I mean, she's speaking of essayists, there's a really eloquent (laughs) essayist, who I admire very much, and I've actually returned to her essays fairly recently. I keep looking back at them. But anyway, so the uses of anger are important. But of course, the anger doesn't really arrive until one is conscious of the reason for being angry, right? I mean, there's the rub. And I think with a lot of I mean, who can I speak for? I think there are a lot of white girls of my middle-class background who turn their anger against themselves.
0: There's a lovely, very funny description of your, I think you're in graduate school at the time and you decide you want to go to the philosophy department. (laughs) Can you tell that story?
1: Yes, I too. I think I can tell this story now because it has become comic for me. It's a comic story. So I was a graduate student in literature And that department was on the sixth floor of Philosophy Hall at Columbia. On the seventh floor, one floor above us, was the philosophy department. I was then reading Immanuel Kant, interested in, well, getting some outside help with this. I then got special permission to sit in on a seminar on Kant. And I had all my papers collected. It had all been okayed. I took the elevator up to the next floor, which looked exactly like the sixth floor, by the way, went down the hallway into the seminar room. And this is what I remember. I don't know, seven or nine young men, all wearing beards, all smoking pipes, and an older male professor with a beard smoking a pipe. As I say in the essay, This memory is impossible. They couldn't all have had beards and they couldn't all have smoked pipes. Nevertheless, there were enough of them for me to have that impression. (laughs) Okay, as soon as I walk into the room, I feel as if I must have farted. It is as if I am bringing a polluted stink into the room, I'm looked at, then turned away from, I find a seat at the end of the table. You have to remember this was a seminar. And at one point, I make a comment. That comment is studiously ignored. It is as if I am not there. The experience was so both startling and humiliating that when the seminar was over, I ran out and I never went back and I have to tell you I never told anyone about it. I felt so confused, hurt and somehow culpable. <laughs> like that I I must have done something wrong, you know. But of course I didn't do anything wrong. It was a form of policing a form of symbolic violence that's exercised regularly on people who are not supposed to be in whatever the realm is that they are intruding upon. And so the story is at once comic because (laughs) they had all dressed up for philosophy, and awful, right? It's awful to treat another human being in that way because she's a woman, (laughs) you know, Wrong
0: sex. I mean, that thing of being made to feel like you're in the wrong place does seem to have actually gone through a lot of this. I remember as you and I met a decade or so ago at a publishing yeah, Dinner, yeah. and I remember you telling me the story, you know, of being mortified when your first book came out. You were interviewed. I think it was a foreign journalist, but somebody said, of course, we know your husband, Paul Oster, actually wrote your book. Yes. And have you all just bursting into tears and sort of vanishing into a hotel room for 48 hours.
1: And- yeah, so the truth is that I did not cry during the interview, I cried after. In fact, as was my general policy at the time, I was extremely polite. I pretended not to be mortified. I calmly answered him that, no, indeed, that was not the case. <laughs> and I was rather surprised that he thought so. Then I went back to my hotel room, threw myself on the bed and sobbed, (laughs) which was the procedure I took for years. And then, I mean, really, it hasn't been that long. I mean, perhaps more than a decade now. I decided this is absolutely wrong. You know, it is much better to confront this head on and also to tell those stories, stories that I think I didn't fully understand. I now believe that that man actually didn't think that my husband had written my book. I think he admired the book, and he thought I was a little too big for my britches, and he wanted to slap me down. And that is indeed what misogyny is. It's policing. Kate Mann has a nice book on this called Down Girl, where she construes misogyny, I have to say, in a different way than I do. But she has a very strong point about the policing of hierarchy that goes on in misogyny.
0: So was there a sort of particular point at which, because as you described, you know, there's been various things where people said, of course, (laughs) you know, you don't really know about Lacan. You don't really know about Bucketeen. You don't, you know, you're, you're not really, you're, you're writing about domestic matters or, or personal matters. Was there, it must have been some point, because you've had a pretty serious career. You're a very eminent person. Was there a point, I mean, it sounds like it was quite recent that you went, you know, I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. I'm not putting up with this shit anymore.
1: Yeah, no, I think I think it was fairly recently. I do think, as with so many aspects of life, it grew, <laughs> You know, it wasn't the overnight decision. It was creeping awareness that actually the silent, dignified approach was really not the way to go. And and I think this is also important because I'm not alone, <laughs> right? This is not about my particularities. This is about culture. This is about how it works. After all, you know, the woman who is obsequious, who agrees, who smiles, who plays the game to a T, is not the one who is told that her husband wrote her book, (laughs) right? I mean, you know, that's, that's not who gets punished, you know, in this particular way that we're talking about. And I think, because I am married to a distinguished and important writer, whose work I love, by the way, that the hierarchy business became magnified, right? That if I also was going to be taken seriously, if my work actually meant something, and God forbid, if I were working in fields that my husband knew nothing about... That was then an offensive gesture on my part for, you know, violating the system. Because I had a man in my life who was there representing, I don't know what, the paternal authority. How dare I bucket?
0: (laughs) There is a very touching essay in the book. Quite, it's another of the sort of memoiry ones where you're talking about mentors and mentoring and about you as a young woman writing to Juna Barnes. Yeah. And, you know getting a little letter back in the post not long before she died but you were as you describe it as a young woman you were very sort of thirsty to have a mentor and you really didn't find one. No. Juno so, unfortunately didn't yeah, she, she was on the verge of death, so it didn't take you up. But you no. say, you think it's probably a good thing you didn't find one. Why do you think that is? Why do you say that?
1: Well, because perhaps I was over eager. I really wanted direction. I really did want a mentor. And as I say in the essay, mentor and what is now called mentee, I have to say I I didn't use that word because I find it quite ugly. I don't know why. But anyway, mentors and mentees replicate parental-child relations. And I think because I always very much wanted approval from my father, who was a professor, and felt that that was not forthcoming or not forthcoming enough that I sought out paternal authority elsewhere and was really rebuffed (laughs) over and over again, with one exception. And I write about a Russian history professor I had in college who was truly wonderful to me. And I am grateful still for his interest, concern, and friendship. But otherwise... I seem to have been a pariah (laughs) in the mentoring department. And so why might that be a good thing? I think actually it was probably better for me to struggle ahead on my own than finding myself under the auspices of some authority figure male or female
0: yeah you do talk in the book also you know as you said you're you know it's very personal you're not afraid to say i and i'm interested in how that goes over into some of the kind of critical work in this book because you've got a long essay on wuthering heights which is obviously a book that's hugely important to you and you say that you teed up with a lot of the different readings that people have made of this this baffling and complex and contradictory book and then you say, what I'm going to attempt to do is a sort of phenomenological reading, where you describe, in a way, your own relationship to it as a yeah. reader. I'm interested in way how you sort of arrive at that and how much you think traditional criticism, if you like, that seeks to, I suppose, analyse and hierarchize and say, you know, this is better than that and this is how it's doing its work. Do you think that's, that's a limiting mode of engagement with a text? Do you think there's another way of doing it and that's what you're trying to do here?
1: Yes, yes I do. In fact, my position about all the arts, literature included, is that what happens is intersubjective, to use that word, which means that it's a meeting of the reader and the text, and the reader animates the text, bringing all his, her, or their biases, education, situation in general to the text so that you cannot separate either side the text is born in the between now that does not mean that all readings are equal <laughs> right there are really stupid readings of books and if yes, i'm glad hundred... you said
0: this because otherwise <laughs> like, you know, people like me would be out of a job. <laughs>
1: If you have any discrimination at all, you could say, really, that's enormously dumb. Or many years ago, when I was teaching as a graduate assistant at Queens College, I would have students who came to me, say, with an essay on the hunger artist. I remember this perfectly well. And one of the students had written that the hunger artist doesn't die. (laughs) And I said, and the student had been given a D, which was charitable, and, and I said, there is a text. A mentoring
0: on your part.
1: <laughs> I, was, I was saying, there is a text, and we know, when you read the ending of The Hunger Artist, there is no question about this, you know, he's dead. And I cannot accept that betrayal of the text. Anyway, so, no, all readings are not equal. But the pretense in a lot of literary criticism has been that feeling has to be excised that the personal experience of reading is out the window to create a kind of science or formal way of analyzing books. Actually, this is changing. I've been reading a very interesting literary critic named Rita Felsky. Her newest book is called Hooked and it is about human experiences with particular books and the emotional attachments that we form with them. So I read Rita Felsky only after I had long come to this notion myself that to excise feeling, from the experience of literature, is simply ridiculous. There's a good, sound, neuroscientific reason for this as well, which is that, you know, feeling, emotion, consolidates memory. What we don't care about, we forget. You know, I've often said this. I mean, the swiftest route to amnesia is indifference.
0: Do you think that idea that we needed to make criticism a science comes out of a sort of anxiety that, you know, in the early half of the last century, where people went, oh, we're a university department now, we have to be doing something proper. And that you yes. get people like I.O. I. Richards thinking, let's make it into a science. Yes.
1: I think literature has, you know, long formal literary criticism of various kinds, has wanted to create tough theories about literature. And this goes, you know, when I was in graduate school, it was the time of high theory, what's now called high theory, which is variable. I mean, Foucault and Derrida and, you know, the French hot shots. That's when I read Lacan seriously, that there's been a turn away from that as well, which I think has to do with embodied thinking, right? That was mostly about cultural construction. It's loosely called but people, there has been a turn back to what we think of as the body in the West, to embodied thought, to thinking about emotions seriously and what it means for the arts and for life in general. I'm in that camp. You're, you're in that camp. <laughs> I'm one of the embodied folks, yeah. Well, there's a lot of
0: really very interesting and, and strong stuff about bodies and embodiment here, particularly female bodies. Now, I mean, this I don't want to lead you down a Total sidetrack, but I'm interested. You know, now we're having a lot of argument about whether femaleness resides in a sex body or in a, you know, an essence of gender. How do you read the current sort of state of what what's come to look like trans wars?
1: Right. Well, listen. I just I want to come down very firmly on the fact that I am very sympathetic to the trans community and I feel very strongly that people should be able to make these decisions and certainly not be hurt because they make such a decision. I think this is just terrible. Do I understand the depths and complexities of gender? I think I do not. And actually in recent years I've been reading Material, what I'm particularly interested in is something that's not that easy to find. It can be found in memoirs, for example, but also scientific papers that include testimonies from people who have transitioned. Just this morning, I read a paper about some trans women, that's male to female transition, who had transferred late in their life. In their 50s. I think they were all in their 50s. One of them had been a soldier in Afghanistan. And there were fairly long quotes from these people explaining their experiences, which are very different. I think what happens in many media discussions is that blanket truths are assigned right? I also read about two young people who were born female, both had transitioned to male and found each other, and then ended up returning to living as women. And this, I think, is quite rare, by the way. I mean, the commentary was that this is extremely rare most often that's not the case
0: when you say sorry they found each other romantically
1: romantically they became a couple yes and so what I think is important is understanding the plurality of all human experience and I think that includes gender motion you know movement gender movement now even in my own way I have always felt a fluidity of gender reality for myself. I mean, I certainly walk around the world as a woman, but in my first novel, the heroine puts on a man's suit and performs as a man. And that becomes a form of armor for her. She doesn't stay in the suit But I've long been appreciative of what used to be called androgyny and is now called gender fluidity. I'm not sure they're exactly the same. I think they're used in different ways and the culture has changed. But openness to human experience is crucial. I do not understand all of it. And in fact, I continue to read because there's so much I don't understand.
0: When it comes to the sort of as it were, traditional embodied female experience. You've got this rapturous essay in here about Louise Bourgeois, in the (laughs) course of which, you say, which is absolutely flabbergasting to me, that there are virtually no depictions of giving birth in Western art. And that nobody had noticed this, is that, can that be so?
1: It is so, and you can Google it, (laughs) nothing appears. I think I point out in one of the essays, that I pointed out in a in a lecture I gave in Paris at a medicine and philosophy conference, which is that in 2011, there were two shards of an Etruscan vase that was found. On the side of the vase, there's a depiction of a woman giving birth and the head of the infant is, you know, outside her body. But the Etruscans were not the Greeks. And my point is that Greek culture suppressed all images of natural birth. Supernatural birth was fine, you know, popping out of Zeus's head is (laughs) part of the business, but natural birth was completely suppressed. What I am getting at, and it's mentioned a few times in the essays, is that omission is as, Important to remark upon as commission, right? So, what's missing from a tradition should be noticed. And birth has been suppressed, gestation and birth, in ways that are stunning. I want to emphasize that in Western folk culture, certain you know i talk about the placenta a little bit this is an obsession of mine the placenta for example in western folk traditions was buried part of birth rituals and of course in many many other cultures it is expelled from birth during what you'd call the medicalization of birth and i was stunned in my researches to find a conference that was held in the UK in 1978, I believe, called Placenta, the Neglected Experimental Animal. This, as far as I can tell, and I may be wrong because heaven knows there's more out there to discover, but that was a moment when the people who attended that conference not many, I think there were only about 40, discussed why the placenta had basically been forgotten from obstetrics. (laughs) Now, in 2014, the Placenta Project was launched in the United States, and research continues apace. It can't be called the forgotten animal or the neglected, overlooked organ to the same degree. But that is... Stunning to me. You know, we're all born. So Hannah Arendt talked about natality as an idea in philosophy, a a very good idea, I think, but she doesn't talk about birth directly. Edmund Husserl was interested in gestation and interested in fetal life in relation to the mother. He's an exception. Someone like Merleau Ponty, the French phenomenological philosopher, used countless pregnant metaphors, as did Kierkegaard, by the way, if you want to track pregnant metaphors, rich pregnant metaphors. He was very interested, Merleau-Ponty was very interested in infancy, in medicine of his period, but he never related his ideas of embodiment and what he called intercorporeality, which is two bodies together in ordinary human situations that we inhabit each other in intercorporeal ways to actual pregnancy.
0: I'm going to oversimplify you massively. Go ahead. Go ahead. Am I right? Is is your view essentially that this is a blind spot because the ancient Greeks were blokes and they were jealous when (laughs) they gave birth and had the power to create new life and that this essentially has shaken its way through a couple of thousand years of history to this sort of cultural amnesia.
1: You know what, I think that's fair. I think it's fair. What I have also understood after many years of reading is how slowly ideas die. This is a fascinating thing. Most moderns, we can if we consider ourselves moderns, right, starting in the 17th century, We think of change as the essence of, you know, what is happening all the time. Mostly, I think people are referring to technological changes, which have been great indeed. But ideas, they're very, very slow to change.
0: I want to end on There's one person you mentioned before. She gave her title to your recent novel. Um, Margaret Cavendish, who is... Is she, is she a sort of patron saint for you? She's an early modern figure and a great boundary crosser. She's a woman who marched into the Royal Society, who combined an interest in science with creative style. I mean, is she your sort of mascot?
1: I think she's become far more than a mascot over time. I actually have a paper that I gave at a Margaret Cavendish conference coming out in a book of papers on Cavendish Because I'm such a strange creature, I think I'm the afterword. (laughs) It's, It's from Cambridge University Press. Anyway, I think she's one of the great philosophers of the period. And in that paper, I relate her ideas to both Alfred North Whitehead and contemporary ideas in the philosophy of biology. So I think that paper, I mean, this is not a idea that goes beyond my brain at the moment, but it is there. I think her status in philosophy is growing. Her status in literature started growing in the late part of the 20th century. Now in the 21st, her philosophical thinking has gained a lot of attention and I think her fantasy, her dream, that even if people couldn't understand what she was doing then, or too few could understand it, that 300 years later, we may have arrived at a moment where Margaret Cavendish is decisively important for a world wrestling with ecological horrors.
0: Well, that's a, a rousing call to buy stock in Market Cavendish, <laughs> and uh, we should buy stock in Siri Hustvedt too while we're at it. Siri, thanks very much indeed for your time. You were listening to the Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes Store. We'd love to hear from you.